And will everyone else please join me in standing in the reading of God's word today from Matthew 7, 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his sons asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. Well, as we prepare once again to look at God's word together, I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, having already seen uh, the beauty of your creation this morning, uh, we have already been reminded of your grace. And singing the songs we have sung, that you are the blessed Trinity who has made yourself known to us through your Son, we are reminded again even more deeply of how deeply you love us, of how we stand in your grace. And so, Lord, in that knowledge that we are loved, we ask that you continue to pour out your love upon us by helping us to hear these words that Jesus has for us, these words that give us life. Would you please give us focus and clarity that we might hear what you want us to hear and be changed in the way you want us to be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, my family and I were packing to go on a vacation to see a couple of my siblings. We were going to meet together in Virginia. And because we realized we wanted to include a lot of things so that the cousins could play together, we didn't have enough space in our van. So I went online to Amazon. I tried to figure out what I could do. And I found out that there was a way that I could essentially have a backpack for our van. It was this big contraption where you put the straps, attached them kind of like to the top of the back door, and you tied them to the other sides, and it would contain a number of suitcases worth of stuff. Problem solved. So we drove down towards Virginia, and everything was going well for a while until we heard someone just kind of impatiently honking behind us. And I'm always a little annoyed when I'm honked at. Probably you are too. I almost kind of like feel defensive, like, what did I do wrong? But in this situation, when I look back, the person kept on pointing at our car's backpack. And I realized that what had happened is that one of the straps had become detached. 
and the other one wasn't that far from getting detached. And if it had just gone a little further, well, let's just say the Ziegler household would have all been on the street somewhere between here and Virginia. So in that moment, a couple of things, thoughts kind of went through my mind. First one was I wondered how long has that strap actually been going and no one has you know, said anything because we didn't notice. But then the second one was just how grateful I was that this one person had taken the time out to decide I'm going to let this person know that disaster is coming soon unless they do something about it. Because think about it, how often have we walked by or driven by something that looks like it's not quite right and we've just assumed, ah, they probably know what they're doing or someone else will tell them. It's a real kindness when someone informs us that we need to do something, that we need to change something to make things better. Now this isn't just a rare opportunity for us. There are a number of times that in our lives we have the option, the opportunity to help people know they need to change. Because let's face it, the Bible says that all of us are sinners. And by definition that means first, that all of us need to change, and secondly, that also all of us have things that are difficult about us. And so the closer we are towards each other, the more aware we are of things that we see in other people that are not quite right, that are difficult to love, that are needing to change. The question is, what do we do about that? If you're in a marriage, inevitably you are experiencing that. And, and so the question is, what do you do? If, if, for example, you know that your spouse is just really controlling, especially in times of stress, and, and you don't feel like you have space for your own opinions or way of doing things, how do you address this in a godly way? Or, or maybe you have a good friend who just is not making good decisions. Maybe they've got a gambling problem. Or maybe you're worried about how they're parenting. Or maybe they're single and they are in an unhealthy dating relationship. What do you do? How do you talk to them about this? Or even let's go to the more mundane. Say you have a friend who is just flaky. That any time you schedule something with them, it's a coin flip whether they show up or not. And if they do, they're always showing up late and it's driving you nuts. Do you talk to them about it? How do you deal with it? What do we do when we see things amongst the people that we are connected with where we know there needs to be change? Because if you're in a family, you see it. If you're in this church, you see it. We are sinners. We want to be a loving community, but we get busy. We get insensitive. We fail to walk with each other in times of difficulty. There are all sorts of places that need to be changed. What do we do about that? This isn't just a theoretical question for me, because as I've thought about it, in some ways my job every week is to help us as a church think about how we need to grow as we hear God's word. How do I do this in a godly fashion? How do we help each other to change in the way that is good and not destructive? That question, I believe, is at the very heart of the passage that was just read this morning. Perhaps as you were hearing Emily read it, you were wondering, how does this all fit together? We have stuff about judging and 
eye care and pigs and prayer. And it just seems like a bunch of different ideas. And, and actually, some commentators have said that's what's going on. That in some ways, this is like Proverbs, where Jesus is just giving us wise principles one after another after another. But I don't actually think that's what's going on. I believe that there is an underlying theme to this. And that theme is how we as believers can help each other to change. In chapters 5 and 6, Jesus has been calling us into righteousness. He's been exposing our hypocrisy. And that means he has been inviting us to change. And now in chapter 7, we're dealing with what do we do when we see others needing to change. And really, I think Jesus gives us five principles for how to do this well. I invite you to keep your bulletins open. We're just going to be going through these different verses and looking at these principles that Jesus gives us for what we do when we see sin in someone else. How do we help them to change? So the first principle that we see in the very beginning is that we are called to remember grace. We see this verse, judge not, that you be not judged. And I've heard it said that this verse has replaced John 3.16 as the most popular verse in the Bible, the one that's most frequently quoted because it's, it's very much of our age, isn't it? Maybe some of you are familiar with the wonderful satirical website, the Babylon Bee, which is kind of like the onion for Christians. And uh, this, this was an article that came out a couple months ago. Um, St. Charles, Missouri, a brilliant theologian, was reportedly able to condense the entirety of Scripture into a two-word Facebook comment Tuesday, instantly silencing all critics in the thread and garnering numerous likes. The gifted exegete, going by the name Kyle Bro, on the social media service, left the comment, Judge not, followed by an authoritative period. Under a friend's post about sexual immorality in the church, stunning his friends and family with his intellectual clarity and theological acumen. I had no idea Kyle knew the Bible so well. I didn't even know he was a Christian, said an acquaintance of bros who participated in the comment thread. I was trying to argue that professing Christians should not be having sex outside of marriage, but he shut me right down. I even deleted my comments in shame after reading his and realizing how right he was. Judge not. That is really a word that, you know, someone might not know any of the Bible, but if they hear Christians doing that, they can just throw that, judge not. And, and by that, most times, I think people mean, don't call anything wrong. Of course, the irony is, even though we are a culture that tries to be tolerant, or at least that's how we speak of ourselves, we still have clear sense of what's wrong, don't we? Or at least, whether it's clear, we definitely have some sort of things that are outside the pale. And the irony is that when we do call something wrong, we are utterly unforgiving. Just think of some of the people who are condemned in our media. If you follow football, think of the way Michael Vick was treated many years ago when he was involved in a, a dog fighting ring, or more recently, Ray Lewis, when it came to spousal abuse. Think of how Dennis Hastert has been treated. Think of the, the different people on Wall Street who have been shown to be so corrupt. Each of these situations were clearly wrong. And in each of these situations, they clearly deserved punishment. They deserved justice. But when people spoke of them, it was with hatred, with utter condemnation. 
These people are below us. They deserve no mercy. It doesn't matter how repentant or sorry they are. They are the lowest of the low. What really, when people are saying judge not, what they really mean is don't call anything wrong, but when you do, be merciless. Now, Jesus means the very opposite of that. He calls us actually to be discerning. Just a few verses beyond this passage, Jesus is going to talk about how there are false and true teachers, and we know the difference by evaluating their fruit, what they do. It's a call to be discerning. Jesus isn't just saying, shut off your moral evaluating tools when he's saying judge not. No, we're called to see the difference between right and wrong in others as well. But Jesus says, when you do see the difference, don't be condemning. Don't take this attitude of moral superiority where they are less than you because you don't have any moral high ground upon which to stand because you yourself are a sinner who is in need of God's grace. When Jesus says, with a measure you use, it will be measured to you, he is saying there is a direct correlation between how you look at others and their feelings and how God treats you. We, we, we came across this theme in chapter 6. Do you remember when we were looking at the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. If we are unforgiving towards others, it shows that we haven't realized how deeply forgiven we are by God. We have, in some ways, shut down his grace towards us. Now, the flip side of this is if you realize that you are a sinner and you realize just how deeply God loves you, then you'll show that same grace towards others. This is really the foundation from which to begin as we're thinking about how to deal when we see the failings of others, that we need to remember grace, to remember just how patient God is towards us, just how gracious God is towards us, so that as we remember it, we are able to then show it towards others. Because the thing is, if we come to another person trying to confront them and we have this sense of superiority, that person will be able to smell it from a mile away. And then it's not going to go well. We are tempted at times to, to gossip, to speak negatively of others when we see bad behavior, because frankly, it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. But Jesus says, remember grace. When we are in the middle of an argument and we feel like we've been wronged and we just want to throw that wrong right back on the other person to make them feel terrible, Jesus says, remember grace. This is the beginning. If we're trying to think through how to deal with when we see the failings of others, we begin by remembering God's grace towards us and showing that grace towards others. And the second principle we have in the subsequent verses, Jesus says, verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log, sorry, how can you let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? I love this. This is one of my favorite sections for Jesus because it shows that Jesus has a sense of humor. And it just becomes obvious if you just imagine what Jesus is saying. Imagine after church if somehow I have this two-by-four just lodged in my eye, and I'm kind of walking and talking to people completely oblivious, and I say to Brent, oh, Brent, I think you've got something in your eye. You might want to talk to Greg Fenton about that. There's a problem with this. I mean, 
It's absurd. I mean, I've got this two by four sticking out of my eye and I'm completely oblivious to it. Clearly my sense of what's important and what's urgent at that moment is lacking. And so we get to the second principle. Jesus is saying we need to repent of our own sin. Not only remember grace, but repent of our own sin. Because when we are looking at someone else's sin and not treating our own, we have a wrong sense of priorities. We're treating the speck before we get rid of the two by four. Because that's so much easier for us to do, isn't it? It's so much easier to see someone else's sin than to see our own. Because when you see someone else's sin, it doesn't cost you anything. There's no inconvenience of noticing someone else's faults. And it makes you feel good. When you see your own sin, it makes you feel bad. And it's going to cost you because it means you need to change. And so we're always going to have a tendency. It's ten times easier to note someone else's fault than it is to truly be honest with ourselves. And so Jesus says, to counteract that tendency, you need to begin by looking at your own sin, finding the two-by-four, removing that plank, repenting first before confronting. Say you do have a spouse that's controlling. Ask yourself this, have you perhaps contributed to the difficult situation by removing yourself and, and not communicating because you're wanting to create your own space? Say you do have a friend who is flaky. Are you yourself being unreasonable because you're so concerned about spending your time well and efficiently that you're being inflexible and inconsiderate for this situation? And this person might be in a really difficult place where it's hard for them to keep things in terms of timeliness. Where do you have sin that you are contributing to this that you can repent of? Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying that it's you who is causing the other person's wrongdoing. I mean, the other person's sin is the other person's sin. It is theirs to be dealing with. And Jesus isn't also saying that in every situation it's 50-50, it's half your fault, half their fault. No, there are some times where the other person is the primary wrongdoer. But that said, in almost every conflict, there are ways that you are likely responding poorly to it. And in almost every time when you are noticing a sin in someone else, there is a corresponding sin within yourself that is causing you to be sensitive and bothered by that particular sin. And Jesus is saying you need to begin there. Where do you have sin in this situation that you need to repent of? Repent first of your sin. Because when you do this, you accomplish two things. First of all, you deal with a part of the situation that you have control over. You do not ever have control over someone else's behavior. But you do have choices that you can make for yourself. You know, if two people in a conflict both decided, I'm just primarily going to work on my own sin first, so much of the heavy lifting would already be done. And secondly, when we first deal with our own sin, that makes us much more capable of addressing the sin in the other person. Notice that Jesus says, first take the plank out, then you will be able to remove the speck in your because because that plank's not going to be in the way. When we first repent of our own sin, that gives us a humility, a sensitivity, an ability to speak to the other person compassionately and wisely. So we need to remember grace. We need to repent of our own sin. But it's important to realize also that even 
even when we have the right attitude and have gone through these first two steps, there still might be wisdom in not saying anything. And that brings us to our third principle here, that we need to recognize what is appropriate for the situation. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This proverb is a proverb about appropriateness. Dogs in that day were unclean. They should not receive what's holy. And pigs were never known for being terribly appreciative of pearls. These are things that you don't do. You don't throw pearls before pigs. And Jesus is saying, likewise, there are, you need to think through what is appropriate given the situation. Because there are times that you can come with words that are truly holy and good. And you can come with the best of loving intentions that you are truly offering pearls but if it's in the wrong situation, if they're not ready to hear, it is like pearls before pigs. It's getting you nowhere. In fact, Jesus says, sometimes it can be like, you know, the pigs maybe feel like they're getting attacked by these pearls and get angry with you and they just run after you. And similarly, sometimes we know this when we confront someone else, all we do is make the situation worse. Jesus is calling for discernment that we need to recognize what is appropriate in a given situation. There are sometimes it is better not to speak than to speak. Now this is, is complicated because there's a tension. A number of chapters later in Matthew 18, Jesus will say that if you are wronged by someone, it is your responsibility to approach that person. And if they don't hear, you bring a couple of other people, and eventually the church, even if it seems like they're not gonna be receptive, sometimes the situation is so grave that you need to do everything you can to make a person hear it. So how do we weigh these two things? Don't throw pearls before swine, but sometimes people need to be confronted. Again, the only answer is it's, there's a call for discernment, a call for wisdom. You know, sometimes a person has wronged you, and they truly have wronged you. But it is not a sin where that person is in grave spiritual danger. It's not like there's this ongoing, unrepentant sin that they're aware of where they're rebelling against Christ. And it's also not a sin that's so grave that means that it's keeping the two of you from being able to be reconciled to each other. It's just an annoyance. In certain situations, if you know that confronting the person with this is just going to make things worse, the best thing to do is just to overlook it, to be lovingly patient and to move forward. Of course, there are other times where it's not like that, where you really are concerned about the person. Or you know that there is a rift in your relationship and you do need to talk to them about it. But even then, wisdom is not to just go in guns blazing, filled with righteous anger because you know that is not going to be successful. But instead, prayerfully, patiently to wait for the right time where they're most likely to be able to hear. And then after you've made yourself heard, Maybe you've tried a couple of times. If they're not receptive, well, Paul's instructions to Titus about those who are being divisive are relevant here. As for a person, Paul says, who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. In other words, here's a clear example of throwing pearls before swine. You are saying things that are good. You're saying things that are true, but they are just unwilling to listen, and your calling is not to keep nagging. 
It's to realize they're just not receptive. You need to recognize what is appropriate for the situation. But even once we do and we know that we have nothing more to say, that doesn't mean our responsibility towards the other person, our longing to see them change ends. And that's what brings us to our fourth principle. We've talked about how we need to remember grace, repent of our own sin, recognize what is appropriate for the situation. And fourth, we're called repeatedly to pray. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now this verse and the verses that follow are about prayer in general, aren't they? And specifically, it's about prayer that perseveres. The, the Greek words for ask and seek and knock are all about the ongoing action, continuing to ask. In fact, one translation has it, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because that's the idea that Jesus has behind these words. It's the call to persevere and a promise that as we persevere faithfully in prayer, we will see God answer. Sometimes he will do what we ask. Sometimes he will do better than we ask, but God always hears. So this is true about prayer in general, but I want us to consider the context. Jesus doesn't say these verses right after he's giving instructions about prayer in chapter 6. He could have. But instead, he's speaking about this right now in the context of dealing with sin in another individual. And I think Jesus is very intentional about that. Because when we see sin in another, we can pray for them. In fact, it is always appropriate. It is the most strategic thing that we can do to pray for the other repeatedly as we see things about them that need to be changed. Let me ask you, when you are worried about a person because you see their sin, what is the first thing that you want to do? Is it that you just want to just speak to them immediately? Well, if your desire is just to feel better, maybe you'll get there, but it's not likely to be that productive. No, the most productive thing that you can do is to pray. Sometimes we say the least I can do is pray. No, that's just wrong. The most you can do is pray. There's other things you can do, but the most you can do is pray because if this person changes, whether it's through what you say or through what you don't say, it's always going to be God who ultimately changes the heart of the individual. I've heard it said before that when we are trying to confront someone in love, what we need to keep saying in our mind and our heart is, I'm not the Holy Spirit, I'm not the Holy Spirit, I'm not the Holy Spirit, because we want to manipulate, we want to change, but we can't. God is the one who ultimately has that person's heart in his hands. And when you're praying, you are essentially saying, I'm not the Holy Spirit, God, I can't do this. But you can. Keep asking, Jesus says. Keep seeking. Because as we do, if we're especially talking about confronting another believer, one of three things is going to happen. That person might change through things that we say as we're praying for them. Or they might change in spite of things that we say. Or it might be that God in his wisdom has decided that that person is not really going to change about this until Jesus returns and that perfect is, person is perfectly healed. But even then, our praying and our asking allows us to wait patiently and gives us a different disposition towards this thing that can be so difficult for us. 
whatever the way, whatever happens, the change that takes place is through God. And so Jesus says, repeatedly pray. If you see the fault in someone else, if you are not praying, why? That's the most important thing you can do. So remember grace. Repent first of your own sin. Recognize what is appropriate in the situation. Repeatedly pray. And finally, reorient yourself to the other's point of view. Jesus concludes with what many of us have come to call the golden rule in verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. By saying this is the law and the prophets, he says this one idea encapsulates all that I've been saying in these last few chapters about what righteousness looks like. And I also think it encapsulates what he has just been saying in these verses about how to confront another person in a godly way, what that looks like. See, our tendency when we see another person's fault is to only be able to see it through our own eyes of how that sin affects us, how it's inconvenient or painful to us. But Jesus here calls for imagination, doesn't he? He says, think about the person that you're looking at right now. Think about what it feels like to be them, how, how frustrated they might be when they recognize their own feelings, how hard it is in the situation in which you find, they find themselves. Imagine you are that person. And then ask yourself, how would you like to be treated? Or another way of considering it, just think about when we have been confronted. Because, of course, the reality is we're not always on the giving end of confrontation. We regularly deserve to be on the receiving end, where people need to talk to us about ways we need to change. And my guess is we've all experienced this in one way or another, and sometimes it has been done completely insensitively and just terribly. And other times, it's gone really well. Maybe we didn't appreciate it at first, but we, we were able to hear it because of the way the person came. What were the difference makers? What made a confrontation be something that was loving rather than something that was just insensitive? My guess is, as you think about it in your own lives, you're going to come with something similar to what Jesus has already said. That the person came graciously in love. That you could tell the person themselves were those who were seeing themselves as people who were working on sin and not as those who were somehow above you, but they were repenting as well. And, and even owning when they were at fault in certain things. These people had thought through when the right time to talk to you was and tried to make it as easy for you to hear as possible. And whether you realize or not, oftentimes my guess is these people were praying to prepare for this conversation. See, Jesus says, think through how you would want to be treated. If you can really enter into the other person's situation and then kind of use that to guide you, that will give you a good sense of how to confront the other person. We need to reorient ourselves to the other's point of view. Look, here's the thing about this. This is not, this is not easy stuff for us. Unless you're doing it wrong, it's not fun to confront another person. It's hard because we know that as sensitively and as kindly as we want to be speaking, we're saying things that are going to be painful. And if we come in love, we won't enjoy that. But it is loving. 
I mean, I didn't like being honked at, but I'm really glad that I was. And so also for us, we can't grow as Christians by ourselves. I've said this before, Christianity is a team sport. When Jesus is calling us to change, to grow into righteousness, we do that together. And that's through, at times, having difficult conversations. But there is a right way to have this conversation. And Jesus leads us in that, and he calls us to a humility and a graciousness. So as we respond, it seems to me one of the most appropriate things to do is to begin by repenting and to begin by savoring grace as it has been shown to us to give us the right disposition towards others. So what I'd like us to do next is is to look at this community confession of sin and to use this as a way of responding where we begin by seeking to take the two-by-four out of our own eye There's going to be a time where we're praying together with the same words, but then I'll give us a time also to pray silently as we think through what God is calling us to change. And then after that, we will be savoring the grace of God, both through hearing the good news and then through celebrating it in the Lord's Supper. So would you please join with me in this community confession of sin? Triune God, we praise you as the God of love and life. Though Jesus prayed that we would be one together, we confess that we fail to live in unity with each other and with you. We are quick to judge and condemn our neighbor rather than pray for them. We have not loved you or our neighbor as you have asked us. Forgive us, we pray, for the ways we have sinned against you. Lord, we long for your spirit to heal us and to correct us. We long for you to help us experience communion with you and with each other. Even now, dependent on your grace, we commit ourselves to live more fully in the unity you desire. Father God, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Spirit, have mercy. Amen. Hear these words of good news from Romans 8. Friends, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. In Christ, you are now children of God. Thanks be to God.